This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Leadership Platform, Multiplying Leaders, Moving Society. It's great to be with you, Adrian Grunewald. And with me on the panel today is uh, Bungani Tao. He's our Youth Leadership Platform presenter and very involved with our Youth Leadership Platform side. We want leadership to spread amongst the youth. So, Bungani, it's good to have you with me. Well, thanks for, for having me on the Leadership Platform. Bungani, um, just before we move on and introduce our guest today, all things leadership, go to leadershipplatform.com, one word, two Ps in the middle. Um, today is our Leadership Masterclass, but also, again, part of the BLSA Authentic Leadership Conversation Series uh, with CEOs of the BLSA. Um, we're trying to get all the board members, at least, and then maybe look at the other CEOs. Uh, and, and part of the reason we're doing this is to get really quality content for our leadership app that is revolutionary that we're about to launch. And then um, and then we know we'll have the best content on leadership and, and issues in our society. We've uh, interviewed Adrian Gore and also Andile, the CEO of Anglo-American. And today we've got Colin Coleman, MD and partner at Goldman Sachs. Colin, it's really wonderful to have you with us on the leadership platform. Welcome. Absolute pleasure to be here. You've, well, you've been on the corporate landscape for so long, but uh, before we dig into that, we're just going to listen to a three, four-minute clip of Bonang Mohale, CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, sharing the vision of BLSA. My name is Bonang Mohale. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Business Leadership South Africa. Our reason for existence, and indeed the architecture, is to look at prosperity for all, by partnering with all the social partners to ensure that we attain this notion of inclusive economic growth in our lifetime. We have just launched a new BLSA strategy that rests on three legs. The first leg is indeed straight out of the NDP 2030, inclusive economic growth and transformation. The second leg is the protection of our key institutions. In general, the Chapter 9 institutions, but in particular, the Office of the Public Protector, because this is the one that is the most under siege. The last is how then do we position business as a national asset. So we hear from that strategy that the new BLSA is really making as its core mandate and focus the business, the environment, but also ensuring that we regain our voice. So the first pillar, had we transformed, we genuinely believe that would have earned the right, the license to operate, to then enlist support from the rest of the social partners so that together we can defeat state capture, which is much more serious much more systemic and systematic, chronological, methodical, with an approach than just ordinary corruption. That's why um, transformation and indeed uh, inclusive economic growth is absolutely number one. The second pillar talks about positioning ourselves um, to really uh, protect the key institutions. Because what stands between us and anarchy is really our constitution, world-class constitution, a gift that has been stood upon us by forebears. Uh, this united, non-racial inclusive constitutional democracy. And then lastly, how does business benefit not just the shareholders, um, but also our own employees so that we can pay them decent wages 
to be able to afford the products and services that we make and provide. And then lastly, of course, is how, as part of that, we can bring about this notion of um, shared value. Shared value by investing in the communities where we have a presence, shared value so that our employees are just the beneficiaries uh, of this democracy dividend. Thank you very much. Colin, as we do with every one of the CEOs on BLSA, uh, we ask them just to, we're just tapping into their feelings and thoughts about where BLSA is at the moment. It's quite clear that that uh, there's more energy, uh, there's movement, uh, BLSA is is much more assertive and it's exciting to see business taking its its rightful role in our society but how do you see it going the last few months you're on the board it seems like a good time to be on the board of, of blsa your thoughts on where it's going well the post uh, nenegate experience was one in which business effectively got a wake-up call uh, to become part of the conversation part of the solution and to effectively take its rightful place in the national conversation uh, it, I think um, I've been on the board over a year, maybe just a year, but that year has been very eventful as it has been in the country. Uh, we've been very active in the CEO initiative. I'm on the CEO steering committee. Uh, and so very much part of the rating agency discussions, the discussions about uh, what kind of public interest solutions business can be party to, as well as dealing with you know, the vexing issue of economic growth. Uh, job creation, and also the areas in which business has its national infrastructure that can be utilized for the benefit of citizens as a whole. And so the Smaller Micro Enterprise Initiative of Adrian Gore and Brian Joffe and the Youth Employment Service Initiative, which we launched last week with President Ramaphosa that I co-convened together with Stephen Kossoff from Investec, very much at the heart of that. Stephen and I, Adrian, all on the BLSA um, executive uh, as in the board, uh, and so that has been a, a very important partnering together with other, my other board directors uh, in terms of having a discussion, how does BLSA, as a sort of senior CEOs amongst the business community, drive this agenda and be part of the solution? And I think they've come to the party. We had a very active media campaign, Business as a National Asset, last year, uh, very much in the face of the tax on business. Mm. Uh, and we managed, I think, to get the business point of view across at the same time as launching these initiatives to give content to our arguments. And now we're in a different world in the post-December period with uh, President Ramaphosa, you know, at the front of the aeroplane being the pilot of mm. the ship South Africa. And uh, we're delighted to have somebody like him who's sh showing true leadership when you talk about leadership uh, and methodically, quietly, but decisively uh, moving the country forward. So uh, BLSA, loud enough for you at the moment? I mean, loud in a nice way. Uh, it, it's definitely, I mean, Bonang has got energy like anything. He's out there, he's on the media platforms. Um, and, and then uh, some of the board members like yourselves and, and Stephen Kossoff and so on also out there all the time. It's exciting for me to see that. You know, we see leadership in action. But do you think we're loud enough? Yeah, I think the voice has to moderate depending on uh, the requirements. So it's not important to be loud all the time, but it's important to be wise and to be uh, thoughtful in what we're saying and to uh, help move things forward. Sometimes you need to be loud and disruptive 
uh, as we were when we needed to be last year. And other times it's important to be solid and uh, part of the conversation as we hopefully are at the moment. And when we need to be loud, we'll be loud. Uh, the land issue is possibly a, an issue on which we're going to be both uh, wise and loud at the same time because other voices are very loud, but we need moderating influences. But at the same time, you know, we need to be thoughtful and put meat on the bone around, you know, substantive issues like manufacturing. How do you drive manufacturing job creation in South Africa? How do you drive mining back to its place as a major job creator in South Africa? And we have to give thoughtful leadership to these issues. Colin, we're going to talk about the broader issues in the sort of the second half of the show or later in the show. Uh, talk about your background, the leader that you are, uh, the, the purpose of interviewing all of you and many others is to inspire or to educate, to raise awareness, to get leadership conversation going. So we're going to try and touch on all those points in the next few minutes. But let's just tap into your belief around leadership. Um, if you can share with us a couple of statements that best describe authentic leadership or an authentic leader to you. And let's just take them statement by statement. Okay, we discuss the statement, we move on to the next one. So what would be the first statement or principle that you des describe uh, an authentic leader or authentic leadership? Well, I think values are always at the center of it, uh, but ruthless execution uh, of those values is critical. You know, I'm sort of reminded as you asked me the question about Steve Jobs, and when you read the uh, – I never actually met Steve Jobs, but – when you read the books about him and you mm. and you see the products that Apple has produced, uh, and I had the joy of visiting the new Apple building, which was Steve Jobs' last act, uh, you see the absolute meticulous detail and the consistency with which he executed the Apple product, with which he executed the Apple building, and the very clear and crystal uh, clear um, image uh, that is unique to Apple that comes to mind in everything that they do. Uh, you had the same thing with Nelson Mandela as a leader that I had the joy of working with uh, for uh, a significant uh, amount of time. And, you know, the very clear branding that comes with the person, you know, the people's king, it's sort of mm. somebody who who will walk in and at the same time be engaging with some of the world's most important people, business people, country leaders, etc. But make sure that he goes to the kitchen and introduces himself to the workers before he touches the platform. You know, that sort of crisp, crisp uh, clarity of vision. And, you know, in a place like Goldman Sachs, uh, the question is what makes a person stand out? Yeah. And Yana is always sort of very aware that you have a unique brand as an individual. Uh, and, um, you know, within Goldman Sachs, I will have a unique brand. There won't be any fuzziness about who I am, what re I represent, what the values are that I carry with me, the culture that I represent, uh, or the, the value add and offering that I have for Goldman Sachs. So, so all of the partners at Goldman Sachs carry with them this, this distinct uh, brand that each name Evokes and together those partners make up 450 of 38,000 people uh, that uh, make the culture of the organization. So, your first description of an authentic leader is crystal execution of your values, what you stand for, and then your business. 
you know, and, and your example is, is um, Steve Jobs and Nelson Mandela. Let's, can we take a minute on that just to understand it a little bit more? Because we all talk about values, don't we? Business must have values. I must have my own values. We just come from Andile, and he also highlighted the importance of that. Um, but the crystal clear execution, because when I do that, then there's alignment between these are my values and this is how I execute it. And the closer they're aligned or congruent with each other, the more authentic I am, I guess. Uh, not easy in today's world. Leaders are exceptionally visible, uh, you know, exceptionally uh, um, uh, well, in, in the open like never before. Everyone around them are reporters. You can't strangle someone outside parliament or do this. or do, you, know, you just can't say the wrong things in the boardroom and then you suffer for it. So interesting times we live in. Bongani, do you have a view on that? And then uh, Colin can expand on it. It's a powerful principle. I think wh- what I'd love to know from, from Colin is with the brands that you've spoken about with in terms of the partners, your specific brand, how would you describe Colin's brand? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I certainly carry with me within the Goldman Sachs organization the brand that I am the African partner representing the South African and African business. Uh, but I guess somebody that's sort of um, come into the business uh, and and built through a very significant investment over a long period of time, a business from really very – I've founded the business in South Africa – was brought in to champion the business and we've grown the business uh and you know every single event every single transaction every single conversation adds to that brand but i guess the best way for you to test that is to ask others what is the brand that that individual represents to them and they will mirror back to you that but i certainly uh would say i have a very strong work ethic I have a very strong uh, teamwork culture. Uh, we have a, a philosophy, certainly with, with respect to my uh, colleagues within Goldman Sachs, that I always see the alternating peers. So whether I have uh, a junior person or a senior person, I know that that person is being hired into Goldman Sachs because they're the best person that could be found in the entire world for that slot. Hmm. And so I trust them completely that they're the best person. And once you let go of the idea that you are better than anybody around you and you say those people are better than me, then you trust them as you would a child or your, your, a member of your family to execute with you side by side. Mm. So I guess that is a very strong ethos that I carry with me. Uh, and it goes to sharing of information within an environment of confidentiality within the team that I work in trusting people and asking them to uh, go the extra mile with me to achieve objectives. And I think that's, that's sort of something that I live by. And with, with the values that you have as a person, what are the two values that you always refer back to in terms of decision-making, uh, running the company itself, and, and just interacting with employees and, and fellow partners within the business and the organization at large? Well, excellence is uh, certainly something I expect of myself and I expect of others, uh, and honesty. Um, I don't think you can operate in a systemic system, whether it's a, a family, a country, a company, uh, an organization, a global organization, without honesty. Once you have honesty broken, then it breaks that culture. Uh, and you actually have to, for your clients, for yourselves, 
for the people around you operate to excellent uh, to excellence, and that means that every single detail that goes into something uh, like the youth employment service project sure. has to be excellent. And sometimes one gets frustrated because it's beyond you. It's overwhelming to achieve excellence in a in a system where you don't have full control. But that's why you need excellent people around you. And it's only it's true that you can only be as good as the people around you. Uh, yeah, for me, your brand is first time I meet you. Um, although I've been interviewing leaders for a long time, for me, your brand is so much part of the solution. Wherever there is a big thing happening and business is somehow involved. Colin's face somehow is there in the, in the in the group in the crowd somewhere somewhere involved background forefront, um, commentating on you know media platforms. So there's a brand which I want to look at at just now when we look at you personally. Is why are you so involved in in all of this? You, you're always there, and, and where does that energy come from, Colin? What else would describe an authentic leader for you? The kind of leader we need in today's world in South Africa. I think the second part of it in South Africa is a very specific uh, kind of leader. You have to, I think, have patriotism, intensity, and passion about the country and about understanding the holistic system, that this is not a winner-take-all environment. This is about us growing uh, the environment for everybody so that the whole society wins. And if you accept that, Mm. then you actually have to pay as much attention to the marginalized as to the power brokers and the people with influence. And so increasingly, actually, through my life, because I, I was born 1962 in South Africa and, you know, into a deeply unequal society. I was always aware as a kid that it was uh, there was a racial privilege. Uh, and obviously, as that racial privilege has been worked out of the system, not completely, but increasingly, there's a class privilege uh, that is in the in the society. And it's true that there's a two-speed society, one that's part of an increasingly non-racial dynamic uh, um, a group that's part of uh, South Africa. And then there's the marginalized, particularly the rural African woman and youth uh, is a class of person that has much less uh, propensity momentum to be part of, uh, you know, the spoils of South Africa and the spoils of the dividends of the post-apartheid period. And so we have to really be conscious. The leaders have to be conscious, not about the people talking to them. It's about the people not talking to them, mm. not in the environment, not in the society voicing their opinions, mm. but the people who are marginalized and unproductive. And that's why this Youth Employment Service Project is so powerful because it really is trying to take those people outside of the economic system and bringing them in at its heart. Mm. And I think the leadership in South Africa has to as actively think about the marginalized people, or at least half of the country uh, who are in that category, as people that they're interfacing with and dealing with day by day. So when you think of the leaders that you've worked with, you mentioned Mandela just now. We all do always as an icon, an example of, of authentic leadership. Uh, what stand out for you? Of, of what, what, what did they do that made them so great? Part of what you say now, but anything else that made them who they are? What did you pick up as you associated rub shoulders with a Mandela on a regular basis? Yeah. Look, I think the, the, the two things that sort of stand out for me is, one, his decisiveness and his ability to focus 
very, very sharply on incredibly important issues at a point in time and get his and and form decisions, communicate them, get people on board them. And that was particularly in, in regards to uh, the mediation that I experienced bringing Butelezi into the elections at the last minute before the election and our brokering that with Mandela and de Klerk at the time, which I was personally party to, and saw that ability to turn from you know, being distracted by a whole bunch of issues, including deaths of people that are at a rally that he was speaking to, to focusing on something that was critically important to our history, which was bringing Butelezi into the election and taking something that was very um, uh, at odds with conventional wisdom about what Butelezi would do and accepting that he now was offering to come into the election but making decisions that made that possible. So that was one thing with him. The other thing was his ability to have this appeal to the elite and the powerful, but at the same time never forgetting his calling uh, to the people and being able to coexist in the same environment, uh, as I described earlier, with respect to bringing working people in that environment into into his uh, uh, his milieu and at the same time appealing to uh, the elite uh, that was around him. Those are, it's a very powerful combination um, that very few people, I must say, have that ability. I think probably Bill Clinton is such a, such a personality, mm. but I'm not sure I've ever met, and I've met a lot of powerful people who have that combination. And, and do you think it has something to do with the fact that he was meticulously clear about his own brand, the kind of legacy he wanted to leave, what he wanted to achieve? Your first point about meticulously executing the values you stand for, what you value personally, and also the vision he had for the country. He was so clear yeah, about that. When the country wanted war, or a large part of the country wanted war, he was willing to go against that to stick with with unity uh, yeah. you know, and all of that. I mean, it was amazing. Look, I think um, the idea of authentic people, being, being really authentic, which requires self-discovery, which is a journey I would say I'm sort of on, maybe not far on. Uh, I would say I've, I'm sort of in the process. But so somebody like Mandela has an authenticity that is undeniable. I would imagine Steve Jobs would have had an authenticity about it, whether you liked what he was doing or not, or you agreed with where he was going, but he was authentic. And I say to my kids, you know, every every interview, every discussion, every interaction is a test of your credibility. Mm. And they actually play that back to me uh, often. Uh, and they use it against me as well, by yeah. the way. If I'm late for, for them, now, why are you late? Uh, or um, or uh, various various things. But, but um, it's true to say that authentic people really stand out. Uh, I would say Lloyd Blankfein as, at Goldman Sachs is a very authentic, clear, crisp brand. He's a particular way of communicating, interacting, and uh, there's no um, haziness about who he is and what he wants. Colin, before we move to the broader issues, is there anything else in leadership in terms of the, the clear-cut leadership conversation that, that stand out? What else describes an authentic leader for you? Is there something else you want to throw in the pot? You know, as a tennis player, uh, as a as a child, um, an extremely intense and serious one, um, and 
you know, if you if you think about the two kinds of people I knew then as the tennis champions, you know, Bjorn Borg, who was the sort of ice-concentrated king of tennis, and John McEnroe, who was this thundering storm, but brilliant. Uh, you know, in a way, those are two good models of leadership. You know, you have a style of somebody who's there, who's very methodical, ex- executing very crisply. When he f- when he fails, you never know it that he how he's absorbing uh, the pain of the failure at that particular moment. Maybe he's uh, he's lost a critical point in the match, or maybe he's lost the match. But the the outward appearance doesn't belie what's going on inside. Uh, and the McEnroe's, you know that you know he is. He's absolutely out there. Uh, and in a way, I always sort of see the Borg model as the much more effective model. because and It shows. It, as well. it shows. And I've seen it with Djokovic, uh, that Djokovic, I saw him play Nadal once at the Queen's tournament before he was Djokovic as we know him. And he was as talented, but he was all over the place in terms of concentration and Nadal crushed him. And then he, he somehow found this coolness, this calmness, this concentration, and he just went to another level. And you remember he was untouchable for years until his recent injuries and loss of concentration. Uh, and that was what defined him for, you know, three years, I think, as the world number one. I'm, I can talk tennis with you all day. I'm, a, I'm fanatical about those, those uh, big matches. Um, and in a way, McEnroe was authentic, I guess, to who he was. But the, that kind of authenticity um, is not good enough to take you where, where Bjorn Borg went. And Bjorn Borg was authentic to who he was. Having said that, you've got someone like Federer who in his young days, he was, he was quite fiery. But now he's more like Bjorn Borg, absolutely controlled. And, 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 and I think that kind of proves what you say. Eventually, the Djokovic's and these youngsters coming through, Sverev and all those others, they'll have to control their emotions and become a little bit more like a Borg or like a Djokovic was if they want to be memorable number ones, you know. And did you, that's what top leadership is then. You're in a very pressured environment. Can you stay calm and just process it and then be decisive like a Mandela Um so a lot in your analogy there. I don't know, Bongani, if you want to come in, if you're a I think tennis fanatic the, as well. <laughs> it's a good no, example. I, I see it from time to time. I think the, the sense I'm getting here is um, a sense of emotional intelligence that brings about um, emotional agility, being able to move between emotions and understanding of yourself, what makes you take, what makes you angry, and all these different things. And I think my question and what I would love to know is how do you control um, your emotions, uh, where critical decisions uh, have to be made within the company. Hmm. I, w- I would, I would say, you know, if you spoke to the people I work with, they would tell you they've hardly ever seen me lose my cool, ever, even under the enormous pressure. Um, and I do absorb pressure a lot. It doesn't mean when I go home that I don't feel exhausted because. I've had a lot of pressure and I've had to absorb it. But I often find that apparent problems go away if you leave them long enough and the important problems stay and then you're solving those. Hmm. Um, and I, I would say the, um, the ability to absorb pressure, particularly in the national space where it's more overwhelming, less in your control, 
uh, is um, is an important thing. I think Cyril Ramaphosa, by the way, as a president, displays and has displayed in uh, the three months since he was elected enormous ability to absorb pressure uh, and to be um, defensive but at the same time be making progress, be on the offensive. And the way he dealt so elegantly with the the issue of the recall of President Zuma uh, is a very good example. That must have been extremely difficult, emotionally exhausting, and pressurizing with all the interests around him. Uh, but if you think about the elegance with which that process happened, uh, even though it may be that behind the scenes there was tremendous danger, uh, and his reference to the South African National Defense Force having uh, assured him that there would be uh, only professionalism in their conduct uh, was a, a giveaway sign in a way that there had been some concerns about dangers with that. But there was no indication of it at the time. It was only post the event that one became aware. And so one one can only assume that Absorbing this pressure, uh, whether it's in my personal life, my um, Goldman Sachs life, or the interactions nationally, is actually quite helpful um, to then dealing with you know, the problems that arise. Then inevitably there will be problems that arise that are going to cause emotional stress and going to cause um, you know, if, you know, robust engagement, let's call it that. Col, uh, the, the loneliness of a leader, isn't it? I mean, uh, we would never really know what it was like during that period where President Ramaphosa was um, negotiating and engaging and uh, the possibility of large-scale crisis. Uh, it's, it's lonely in a way. You almost want everyone to know exactly what's happening behind the scenes so that they can have appreciation for the calmness and the process-driven leadership and decision-making that's happening. And that's often the case with leadership is you're alone. Uh, you, you see the full context. Everyone around you don't. And, and, um, and that doesn't make it easy. I think it can be very difficult. Great yeah, respect think, for him there, I think. Yeah. I think, though, there, there's, a, there's a risk of overstating the individuality of leaders. Uh, I mean, there's no question that um, President Ramaphosa was surrounded by very strong people uh, you know, that he would regard as – uh, as people that he would take their advice and counsel extremely seriously, whether it's the national executive of the ANC or people like Pravin Gordon or, or others that would have been around him giving him counsel, Blade and Zamandi or whoever, uh, are the people that he would regard as closest uh, to him. But at the end of the day, there's certain moments I can see it very clearly where an individual stands and they have to make a judgment. And that that may be very few and far between in time, but those judgments can really move history. Um, and I think Mandela would have had those moments. Cyril will have and maybe have had those moments already. But most leaders get to that point. Mm. Colin, let's go broader. I'm, I'm very interested in, in your background. Uh, you were always in this, at the center of South Africa's change, uh, anti-apartheid uh, activist in your own right, um, part of the South Africa's constitutional transition. Just 
we know a business delegations played big role in the early 90s. My uncle was General Tini Grunewald, who was close to Constant Falun. Politically, uh, no alignment there, but it, it was fascinating um, hearing from him how a lot of the things happened behind the scenes. We had him on the show as well, how close we were to war. So, so you were involved somewhere on the playing field. Just give us a few moments of that, um, because today you're still involved on, on different levels and in different ways. But let's understand Colin Coleman a little bit in terms of history. Yeah. Look, my family has played a very big role. My family is uh, almost uh, all of us have been involved in the anti-apartheid movement in one or other way. Uh, my brother was detained in 1981. My parents formed the Detainees Parents Support Committee with other uh, parents of detainees. Uh, and we were very engaged in the anti-apartheid movement. In uh, 1981, I was an architecture student uh, at the time when my brother was in detention and got very involved in NUSAS, the SRC, the end conscription campaign, um, the National Education Crisis Committee, etc. And that's where I met many of the people that I've kept relationships with uh, right throughout. In fact, Ponang Mahali, the CEO of PLSA, Temba Maseko, who was later in government but was a, was a fellow student leader at the time. And uh, he and I, there's a picture... Uh, we produced uh, uh, on LinkedIn to um, part of our condolence message around Winnie Mandela's passing where she was on campus together with us and there was uh, an address she was going to make. She never made it because there were more police than there were students. I think there were 5,000 students and more than that it's police and they broke up the march. This was 1987. Uh, so she wasn't able to speak, but uh, but that's one example. But many of these people that you know I was dealing with at the time have become uh, national leaders of one form or another. Uh, but um, after university, I went into something called the Consultative Business Movement that became a facilitating body in negotiating with all the parties on behalf of business leadership. And that led to us being appointed as the secretariat to CODESA uh, in the early 90s. And I became uh, you know, secretary to the to the multi-party talks a subcommittee of CODESA with Tabo Mbeki, Pravin Gordon, uh, a variety of Baron Duplessis, a variety of people were on that committee. And ultimately, we became very involved in negotiating the constitutional uh, talks. Uh, and that led in '94 to us facilitating the international mediation. Kissinger coming and then Kissinger going and ultimately getting Butelezi into the election. So that that uh, that was the period before I got into banking, which I did in 1994. So I've been in banking 24 years, first at Standard Bank, then at J.P. Morgan in London, and then Goldman Sachs for the last 18 years, of which I'd be eight of eight of those years have been as a partner. So it's been quite a quite a journey. In my book, Seamless Leadership, that I wrote two or so years ago, um, in the introduction pages so i must give you a copy uh, i go through this experience where um, my uncle shares how general constant falun was asked by the ambassador of the u.s that if ever things got to a point where they decided negotiations aren't working and they're now going to civil disobedience or you know more um, uh, aggressive stance that they must call him and um and he did he called him a few days before the election i think and he said, uh, we're out. This is not going to happen. And and the ambassador said, give give us, uh, what did he say? I think he said, give me 72 hours or something. And he said, um, 
don't have that much time. He said, okay, give me 48 hours. He says, you don't have that much. He said, give me 12 hours. And the next morning, he called and said, right, the signing will happen at the union buildings. The role that everyone played, and you often wonder what happened there, you know, a call to the president and, or maybe people like yourselves playing a role. There's so many dots that we all um, have not linked yet, and I don't know if there's enough books to, to say what happened behind the scenes. But I could take you – we could talk tennis a lot, you and I, and then we can talk a lot about this stuff. Uh, a great passion I have, and I think the miracle of South Africa and the leadership involved is much bigger than most of us realize. Is yeah, that your view as well? I mean, much more happened than we could ever imagine. The concept of a miracle is an interesting concept, um, but uh, being fairly agnostic as an individual myself, uh, you know, science explains everything. The, the reason people see it as a miracle is because it was a fantastic outcome that hasn't been fully explained. Yeah. And the fully explained part is that many, many stories are yet to be told. I will certainly write my story one day in respect of certain important passages that I can only write because I was there playing a particular role. Um, but I'm sure there were many such stories. So the dots will be linked when the dots are written. Correct. And they can be linked. They can be linked. Colin, let's, let's fast forward. We're now in 2018. Uh, not an easy time. Um, you're part of the CEO initiative, BLSA, and I'm sure other forums as well. But having Bongani here, who runs our youth leadership platform show on Cliff Central and who's involved in Youth Matters, you launched the Yes Youth Employment Services Initiative, which wasn't an overnight thing, no doubt. Why? And just give us the heart of this thing, the heartbeat of this. It was a successful launch, brilliantly done. You managed to get the president there. It looked like it, they owned it as well. I know they're part of it, but there's huge ownership in this thing. So well done. Uh, you know, that's what we need, and we need that to be successful for, for this country to succeed and many other initiatives. Why this we know youth in unemployment is a big issue, but just what drives that? Yeah, um, look, to, for capitalism to succeed in South Africa, it needs to have an inclusive model, a human model, uh, and it needs to uh, address sustainably the interests of all people. Um, and so the growth motive and the profit motive in and of itself is not going to be sufficient to sustain particularly given the legacy of South Africa and the exclusion, uh, racial exclusion and class exclusion over many centuries. So we have to find a way of bringing people into the economy to transform, and that cannot happen without sufficient growth. So the business interest is to get sufficient growth, but also sufficient transformation. And if you look at the Chinese model, Effectively, what happened in China through their 30 years of transformation has been to create the consumers that have been driving their growth. And they've done that through an infrastructure and investment-led model that's produced consumers on sufficient scale, 1.4 billion people, that growing at 6.5% per annum now is adding to South Africa's every year to their economy in terms of size. And we've got to think of ways of bringing more people into the economy to produce more, to use the talent of people that is undeniably there, to get them to have more income, for that income to become part of the economy, for us to be able to consume more, to produce more, and therefore to have the flywheel of growth uh, and, um, and a population that has a purchasing power that grows with it. 
And the more that we do that, the more we have uh, borderless economies into Africa with our 1.2 billion people in Africa becoming part of uh, the group. If we're producing here, we're manufacturing, we can produce goods for Africa more seamlessly, we will become a much more successful story. So we have to bring more people into the economy. To do that, we need to address this unemployment problem. We have to grow the economy. To do that, we need much more growth-friendly policies and ruthless execution mm. of those. And we need transformation to make everybody feel that they're part of the growth story. So having a youth employment project was very much part of the vision uh, of, this, of this grander design. Uh, and President Ramaphosa, then Deputy President, uh, was critical in a meeting we had 18 months ago with President Zuma and his cabinet to saying, can the CEO initiative at the time was talking about smaller microenterprise development, investment, investment grade rating strategies and so on. Can we put on our agenda the question of practical ways to address the youth unemployment problem? Because it is of such a scale, 6 million people that it is critical for us to apply our minds. And I had produced a report called Two Decades of Freedom, which had raised this question of how do we bring unemployed youth into the equation. And the, mo the model I was thinking at the time was the Defense Force and Public Works model. And um, the, the then Deputy President asked us to examine the optimal way. Stephen Kossoff and I decided to take this on and were mandated by the CEO initiative, Jabba Mabuza and others, to do this. And we got a task team together, including government, labor, communities, uh, and business and leaders of business, to really think about it. And we did an audit of ways in which we could do this. Mm. And in essence, it became clear to us that the public sector was not the optimal way for us, but that businesses with a national infrastructure, if you think about banks, you think about uh, retail shops, consumers, uh, consumer uh, companies, mines, warehouses of logistic companies exist everywhere in South Africa. If we could use that infrastructure to effectively bring um, uh, young people who are not necessarily uneducated, by the way, people that have gone through TVET colleges or gone through universities, but who cannot find employment into the workforce in an internship model that they get paid an income but at the same time, they learn, they have a, a quality work experience, and they get some accreditation at the back end is going to make them three times more employable uh, once they've left in the economy by having that certified experience. And this obviously grew over time. We gave it a lot more content, and we thought about incentives because to do this, to get 330,000 people through the door each year for three years uh, over a three-year period, requires massive organizational effort and is costly to business. And so we engage with the National Treasury about the Employment Tax Incentive, which is a rebate uh, mechanism or a, uh, a credit against your tax, number one. And we also engage with the Department of Ta uh, Trade and Industry about BE credits so that you can get uh, for reaching your targets uh, rewarded on the BE codes, in, in this case, one level up if you reach your target that's agreed, and two levels up if you double your targets or you absorb uh, additional employment. And to, to do this, obviously, uh, other in other mechanisms for business is costly in and of itself. So this is a way that you can meet a national objective. 
but at the same time meet transformation and empowerment goals. Uh, and so that's, that's I, I think, a win-win for the participants. Uh, and that, in short, is uh, what we've designed with this youth employment strategy, which has been adopted by the government formally, passed through NEDLAC, so all the constituents are on board unanimously. Uh, and at the launch, we had representative youth, labor, and business effectively welcoming it and the president uh, endorsing and calling on businesses to participate. And it actually happened fast, if you think of it. I mean, what, everything you say there, and that's a very quick summary. Mungani, I mean, heck, you know, um, movement, a lot of detail, meticulous implementation. Sounds like excellence is in there, mm-hmm. and the launch was very excellent. So does it speak to you? I mean, you're a young entrepreneur, maybe because out of choice, maybe because you can't find a job. You are making a difference out there. Thoughts on, on this? I think wh- what I'd love to find out mostly is um, with in terms of the youth that you're concentrating on um, for the internships, because that's the model, what, what kind of youth or where are the youth coming from? Are they coming from universities? Are they coming straight out of high school? Because then in, 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 in that, after um, making or just, or, just, or just deciphering through that part, we can be able to understand um, what other challenges are posed by the model itself. Because I'm thinking right now that there's youth that can't afford education. So if it's mainly graduates, there's a lot of youth still that will be marginalized or left out of the economy. And then if it's from a matric, how, how, how is everything going to play together? The first thing I'd say is no matter how big the campaign seems to be and of scale, it's a small, modest contribution to the issue. It, this is not a means to end unemployment within a three-year time frame. All we are doing is providing one million, hopefully, uh, people over a three-year period the opportunity to go in and experience the world of work, get paid for it. But it's not the offer of permanent employment. Over time, hopefully, these million youth or a portion thereof become absorbed into permanent jobs because the companies find the talent and they uh, and they absorb the talent in a more permanent basis. The people who come in uh, theoretically should be the best uh, amongst the pool of unemployed youth out there because this is going to be um, participating companies selecting themselves, the people that they feel best suited to the jobs that they're going to be offering or the internships they're going to be offering. So theoretically, these should be in the first instance the most educated, the most qualified, the most charismatic uh, of the unemployed youth talent. Uh, and there's no short-term fix. We can't say we are solving 6 million youth unemployment problems. But at least if you are an unemployed youth that has come out of a TVET college or a uh, university or you've left school and you're hoping to get in the world of work there's a hope that there's a particular mechanism t- to to get there it's by no means perfect mm-hmm. uh, it is in many senses an unprecedented global experiment that we are trying here with this level and scale of people to get into businesses and the machinery is going to have to adapt so if Tash Ishmael the CEO of Yes was here she would tell you that I've been very engaged about what I call the factory. Okay. So how does the factory of Yes work? How do you come into Yes? What does the website do? What is the, 
the the youth app, all of that. And to be honest, it's going to start slowly and it's going to ramp up. Mm. So we're going to get better at the technology, at the factory, at the me- mechanics of how yes is going to work. But uh, we want to lower expectations that it's going to be a perfect experience at the beginning. Over time, we're going to uh, learn as we go and it's going to become a better uh, experience for people. So coming up with the model, I, I heard the, the, the president speak about how you your hopes of taking it to also like townships and, and you know, cities that uh, are far away from where the economy is, is, is actively working. What, what, um, what, what, what uh, constituency do you have that will make sure that that happens? There, there are three ways that we are, are hoping to achieve the internships. So one is in the companies directly, their head offices, their shops, their bank branches, the, the warehouses, etc., but companies can only absorb so many people. The second area is going to be outsourcing the, in other words, companies paying for these people to be absorbed into other businesses, whether in the township, smaller micro enterprises, or helping to create that capacity. Uh, so many companies will choose to pay for and get the credit for paying for um, these interns to go into uh, organizations outside of their own companies. Mm -hmm. And also part of that is that we want to create what we're calling incubation hubs in the townships. Oh, yes. Uh, We have actually had commitment for 15 uh, of these hubs to be built as sort of uh, multi-purpose centers in townships uh, throughout the country. And we're hoping to build 100 of them, but we have funding for 15 at the launch. Have, have you identified certain townships that those 15 are going to be situated, or is it still in the decision? It's still in process. Okay. There have been some identified. Um, but again, we'll make announcements about that as, as they get developed. But we have got 15 funded that we're going to have to build. They will be uh, data and tech-rich experiences. <laughs> Uh, where you, young people can go in and participate, uh, go online, look for opportunities, receive training, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of like a, a facilitating environment within a township, yes. within the location, to uh, allow young people to enter into the YES system, so mm. to speak. Mm. Uh, and hopefully that will also be a springboard to getting people into internships. With, with the internships themselves, uh, Marnas Broderick, uh, he sent a tweet, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, and he, and he spoke about how there are uh, a lot of jobs out there. But the problem is the skills mismatch with a lot of graduates. They get into degrees that three years when they're done with their degree, it's obsolete. It's not needed in the economy because it's forever changing. We, we're in the fourth industrial um, revolution right now. Everything moving more tech wise. What, what kind of structure um, do you have as well in place to make sure that these youth that have the potential to be absorbed have the necessary skills? Because then it, it, it would bring in another element of a gap in, 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 in the process. Because now you're sitting with a lot of talented youth, but the talent can be used within these organizations. As I say, this is not a magic formula to fix all the problems. Uh, but I think there will be a self-selective process by the companies and by the youth to try and match uh, the supply and demand. 
Um, and hopefully, again, uh, you know, we will find that the companies become better at selecting the right people and the youth at selecting the kinds of skills that will lend themselves to getting into the jobs mm. and to the workplace. And then perhaps with the incubation hubs then we'll upskill the, the, the lots that's not absorbed um, to either start their own businesses or just venture into the entrepreneurship field. Yes, and I, I think the, we, are, we are very alert to the fact that there may be people that are well-educated but have never been in the world of work, don't know what it means to prepare uh, for the world of work, get to work on time, be appropriately dressed or properly ready, uh, know what the rhythms are at the, at, the, at the world of work, be in a disciplined environment, you know, where there's set hours, set processes, set rules and regulations and learn those. So there's going to be a, an onboarding training process to assist the, the youth, at least conceptually. That is the way we've designed it and thought of it. So there's a kind of onboarding entry process and then there's a an accreditation certification and exit process mm. to help people get ready to uh, apply for for work permanent work. Maybe you can have Colin on your youth leadership I, platform. I d- <laughs> <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> nice conversation. It, it, it requires a show all on its own. Colin, as we wrap up the show in the next few minutes, um, I have two questions. The one is what conversations are we not having that we should be as South Africans? And then I want you to kind of end with a message to, to leaders out there, uh, uplifting message, I don't know, message of hope or anything. But are there still conversations we're not having? Yeah, I'm sure there are conversations we're not having. I, I would say there's a, uh, a spring in South Africa. You know, it's not a Prague spring, but it's a South African spring. There's an opportunity and a fresh hope for South Africa. Uh, and the conversation we need to have is how does each and every citizen of this country make it work because the threat is if it doesn't work this time around then we revert into uh, a a situation that we were close to in South Africa of becoming uh, very polarized oppositional the system not working as a team and the team not producing results for everyone so this is about how do we use this let's call ramaphoria moment uh, to create a constructive engagement and a positive energy I must say the posts that I have made on social media uh, have had an unusual uniformity of response of encouragement and positivism around yes it's absolutely clear to me no one in society uh, in leadership positions, etc., are voicing negative views on yes. That's a most wonderful uh, phenomenon. It's almost unprecedented in my experience for this to be the case. In other words, everybody adopts yes as a great initiative, a great uh, environment, whether you're from business, labor, the youth, communities, etc. And what are, the, what are other areas that society really wants to see that can take this kind of shape, have this kind of uniform endorsement. But obviously now we need to get behind it and make sure that, you know, in two years' time, you don't come back and say, Colin, we had this great idea, we had this great initiative, but it didn't live live up to its promise and it's let people down. And it will only let people down 
if everybody doesn't grab it by its neck and make it work. Mm. Every single smaller micro enterprise, this is not just for big companies, every single smaller micro enterprise, every medium company, every multinational, every local company adopted it, whether it's one or two or 200 or 400 or 3,000 people, make sure you take on your yes candidates and be part of the solution. That's so exciting. Maybe that's your message to leaders, or is there something else you want to say to uplift to send them out there with energy um, because we'll be breaking up this into smaller video clips and sending it out to the to the world. What is your final message to leaders? Well, I think my final message to to everybody is South Africa really has this great promise at this point in time. We're sitting at the foot of Africa, which is the last continent in the world that has this promise of great transformation and momentum. And South Africa is a sophisticated economy at the foot of Africa. We can help transform this market. Uh, we can become uh, the continent that China was 30 years ago with a great promise. We can realize the opportunity uh, just by making the right choices, the right leadership choices, the right policy choices, and not breaking things down. We've got to build and build for the future. Thank you so much, um, Mongani. Thank you for joining us today. As well, thank you for having me. And uh, making your voice known here on this platform. Colin Coleman, MD and partner at Goldman Sachs and board member at BLSA, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, show as part of the BLSA Authentic Leadership Conversation Series. It was an honor to meet you and to have this conversation. Uh, the time always flies because there's so much to talk about, but we appreciate that you, you set aside some time to, to talk to us. Absolute pleasure. That's the Leadership Masterclass. Um, thank you for joining us. We uh, look forward to being with you again next week. Cheers, everyone. This is CliffCentral.com.